You're listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. Jubilee Montreal is a Christian church located in downtown Montreal that exists to share the good news as a spiritual family for holistic transformation. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jblmontreal.org. We've been going through a series called The Quiet Revolution of Love. The Quiet Revolution of Love is about uh, what the message of Jesus uh, really is. So we're trying to go back to the source and look at what Jesus was about and what he said. And at times that's going to come into conflict with the way that we've experienced Christianity or the way that Christianity is portrayed uh, on TV or on Facebook or in the lives of people that you know. We're trying to figure out what is Christianity really, if you boil it down at the heart of it, what was Jesus about? You know, when, when Jesus... Uh, lived and spoke in the, the time that these stories come from, the word Christianity didn't exist. And that word came later, in fact, uh, quite a bit later, as a way to, to talk about people that followed Jesus and were about Jesus. And so it's important to go back and say, is, is Christianity really a negative controlling thing, as it's often seen, outdated, uh, you know, not useful or just wrong? Or is it good news, or does it have something to say about your life, and, uh, and should you believe in Jesus? And so that's what this has been about. And last week, if you were here, we talked about the concept of hell, and how that's especially an idea that people would have trouble with, believing that Christianity is not good news, and is not positive, and I don't need an, the concept of hell in my life. But we talked about that. It's, it's taken me a bit longer than usual, so it's not online, but it'll be online this coming week. Um, Oh, no. Um, why don't we spend a minute? I'm going to pray and, and leave a moment to just uh, kind of relax awkwardly in silence. And then, uh, and then we'll keep going. Father, thank you for your love. I thank you, Father, for... I thank you, Father, that you say that you're near to us. That you're near to all of us. I mean, you're near to people that don't believe that you exist. You say you're so near... That it's as if we could, if we would just reach out our hands, we could touch you. A lot of these things, Father, are hard to believe, even for me sometimes. So, Father, would you speak to us this morning? Would you continue to speak to us? Would you, would you let us know? I mean, life gets so busy, Father. Life gets so hectic. And not even just busy with things, but busy with, with inner things, with emotional things, with stress, with anxiety. That it's really hard to believe that you're that close. And even if we believe in you, it's hard to, come to, to kind of come back into relationship with you. We feel far off. And I'm going to leave a moment of silence, Father, and would you just help us to rest in you, to come back to that. Father, would you help us today? We're your children. It's, 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 uh, it's not about what we do. It's just about the fact that you love us and you want to be near us and you want to show us the way to do that. So help us in your name, I pray, Jesus. Amen. So we're almost done with this series, actually. It's going to be, uh, I'm going to speak right now, and that's one. And next week we'll have a guest speaker with us that will be speaking on another passage in Luke. And then there's just one more week. 
Uh, so the last week will be November 20, whatever that Sunday is. You get it. Um, but today, you know, we talked about how last week, which is this, you know, a difficult idea to try to square with this idea of love for most people. Today is a simple passage, and it's really, to me, in a way, the heart of what the series is about. Uh, the word love is not in the, the passage, but it's a, it's a really simple reminder of what is, God's saying, what is at the heart of what we call Christianity. I've been thinking uh, this week, or just a lot lately, about what we, what we do as a church, what I do as a job, you know, it's a bit weird sometimes. Um, what we say we're about is we say we're about sharing good news as a spiritual family for holistic transformation. Holistic transformation refers to being changed on the inside so that then that'll spill out into my life, into my behavior, and into the world. And so uh, we believe that God wants to change the world from starting with the inside of me, not by changing my behavior, but by changing my heart. But the way, when we boil all that down, all that talk, I mean, what we're really practically doing here as a community is helping people to have a relationship with God. That's basically it. And so when I think about what Angelica and I do for work, or Elena, it, it sounds silly and almost irrelevant to a lot of people that I guess, I mean, I'm doing lots of things, but I guess it's all to the point of helping somebody to have a relationship with God that's real, with, the, with, with God as he really is in a very real way. And then there's lots of things after that, but that's basically it. Which sounds funny, I think, to, to people. that That's what you do for a living. You help people have a relationship with God, but is God even real? That's a bit odd. So I've been thinking about that and, uh, and just realizing, though, that that's the beautiful point of what we're doing. It's actually that simple. And if we would come into this kind of relationship with God that, that God desires, life would change. I mean, everything, and we're about all kinds of other things, but all those other things would happen and change if we would come into this relationship with God. So we have this, this text that is kind of what Jesus is talking about. So Luke chapter 18, verse 9 to 14. Um, I'm not going to read it all at the beginning, so if you just want to stay, the, the, the words will be on the screen, and we're just going to go verse by verse and see what Jesus has to say. So, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone, Jesus told this parable. Sorry, I have like something. Um, so, it's important in this story. So, we always take a time during the gathering where, where there's a teaching on the Bible. It's called a sermon, if you don't know. That's what it's normally been called. And we're just going to go through a story of the Bible and, and believe that God speaks to us through it, that it's relevant to our lives right now. And I think this one you'll see is, it's, they're all quite relevant, especially this one. And, uh, but it's, it's important to say for everybody right now that the story we're telling is a true story. So again, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, as a Christian, it's easy to read the Bible as an overly spiritual document of things that didn't really happen. And if you're not a Christian, it's, it's easy to believe that it didn't actually happen. It's just like somebody's beliefs or wise sayings. But the story is true, and the story happened, and there was a man named Jesus that walked around, and he encountered a group of people on a day. He saw that they were people, as he called them, who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, and he told them a story. So it's important to just know that this happened, that Jesus was intent on, on telling this story for them and for people later. So uh, what's important first is to know what Jesus is talking about here. It's a simple story, but it's, the most important part is right here. Who's he talking to? Um, no worries. There's a flood in the front. Um, so he encounters this group of people, and he says, I, he sees that there are people who are confident in their own righteousness. What does that mean? 
The word righteousness, we don't use it very often today, but if we were to use it, you'd probably think I meant, meant uh, you know, Rob is a very righteous guy. If we're not, if, yeah, I guess surfers use the word, but, but besides that, if I say that Rob's a very righteous guy, um, you'd probably think I'm saying that Rob's a very good guy, that Rob follows the law, or he follows rules, or he's, he's a decent guy, he, he's an upstanding, upright guy. It's not totally wrong for what the word means, but it's not really what the Bible understands righteousness as. We understand righteousness as doing right things, as being a good person, but uh, Jesus doesn't use the term like that, and the, we know that because of the whole beginning of the Bible, everything that comes before Jesus lived, which is the majority of that, uh, uses the word righteousness really differently. And they use the word righteousness to mean uh, a special relationship with God where you're fully accepted. So usually God's the one that does this, and he says, you know, I, I deem Rob righteous, which means I deem him able to have a relationship with me, totally accepted by me. That's why we get the idea that it means about doing things right, because we imagine that for Rob to have a relationship with God means that he must do everything right to be righteous. But the word doesn't really mean that. It means to ha- just to have a special relationship with God. This is why throughout the story of the Bible, you have people like Abraham who God considers them righteous. It's not that Abraham was a perfect man, but for some reason, because of his faith, God, God deems him righteous and says, you have a special relationship with me. And in fact, he did. Abraham is an example of a special relationship with, with God. But what Jesus is saying about these guys is that they were confident in their own righteousness. So what does that mean? It means that when, they, when, he, when he came and he saw, you know, sorry, Rob, when he came and he saw Rob and he said, Rob's, Rob is confident in his own righteousness, it means he's confident in his own ability to have a relationship with God in which he's accepted by God. Now, the way that these people would probably do that is they would think it was about their behavior. It was about who they were as a person. So I believe that I am confident in my own ability to have a relationship with God based on, we see this later, based on who I am, the life I live, that I'm a decent person. So in that case, they have kind of this understanding of, of it, but it all revolves around a relationship with God. We, we have like axed God out of the equation and just make it about being a good person, but they believed it was about having a relationship with God that was uninhibited, that was fully accepted, and they could walk into his presence. Because of that, then, these people that he's talking to believe that they should look down on everyone else. Because they believe so strongly that they can, within themselves, have a relationship with God, when they look at other people and think they don't, they don't behave correctly, they don't have it together enough to have a relationship with God, and so they naturally, in pride, would look down on other people. Jesus, as he does, notices this in a group of people, and instead of just calling them on it, instead of just saying, you guys are, you guys are, are, are self-righteous, as we would use that word, or, or proud, he says... I, he's, he's going to tell them a parable. And a parable is a story. It's usually how Jesus teaches. He tells them a story that the meaning is a bit hidden. It's a story that they'll listen to and maybe be a bit open to, but the meaning hidden behind it is going to cut to their heart if they're able to see it, right? That's the purpose of a parable. So that's righteousness. Righteousness is having a, having a relationship with God, a special relationship where you're fully accepted. So Jesus begins this parable by saying, two men went up to the temple to pray. And I love that because it sounds like the beginning of a joke. Which I can... And a song. If you know the song, it sounds like a song and it sounds like Jesus starting with a joke. Two guys go into a bar. And so two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. This is a bit more context and then we get into the heart of it. 
they're going to the temple. The temple, these guys are Jewish, both of them, and the temple is the center, is the most important place for a Jewish person. And they believed that the, in the temple, the presence of God dwelled. So they could have a relationship with God anywhere, but in the temple was the, the fullest expression of, of where God lived. And so they would go there to, to, to talk with him. When, when, if I were to tell you I was going to go somewhere to pray, you would probably think that I'm going to go sit down somewhere and pray by myself kind of quietly. Uh, but what, what this is saying is actually, it's much like this right here. They're going to the temple to worship. It's a public, communal thing they're going to. In fact, in, in, it's a cultural thing that even in the Middle East today, if a Christian is going to a church, they would, they would be more likely to say, I'm going to the church on Sunday to pray. But what they mean is take part in something like this, a corporate thing. It's not all specifically prayer. So the, the temple was there, and if these guys are going at the same time, it means that they're, they're both going to a worship service, somewhat like and unlike this. And so they're going, and what's important to know is that at the temple, uh, there's, there's two times a day that they would go pray. Either at dawn when the sun rises, there would be a service, and about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, there would be a service every day. Not all Jews could make it, of course, but... But these guys apparently can, and they live close enough. And so they're going to one of these times. Both times, at dawn and at three, is a special prayer service where a bunch of people are going to gather, and a priest, whose specific job is to do this, is going to take a lamb. This is a, you know, this is a big, epic kind of place. I don't know if I can paint the picture for you, but he's going to bring in a lamb, a real living lamb, onto an altar. And he's going he's gonna to say... Uh, some prayers and, and do some rituals and he's going to slice the throat of the lamb and the blood is going to spill out on the altar. They're doing this twice a day. you know. And then he's going to sprinkle the blood all over the altar and then there's going to be people just all gathered around. So twice a day they're doing this and as he, as he kills the lamb and he sprinkles the blood, um, he's also going to light some incense afterward to, to burn. And at this point, when this is all finished, everybody's just watching this like horrific thing happen. They're gonna, there's going to be a time to pray. And it's obviously not specifically known, but it's believed that people would pray corporately like this, some quietly, some out loud. And they would be, it's a time to give thanks to God for what's just happened because the meaning of killing the lamb for, for the people was that, was that this, and they're doing, it twice, remember, they're doing it twice a day because it's so important that this happened. The blood spilled is going to, to uh, atone for their sin. So anything wrong that they've done, they want relationship with God, but to have relationship with God, they must be in a place of righteousness, right? Of right standing, acceptance with God. So for the Jew, the serious Jew, they believed that the, the, the shedding of the blood for the lamb would cover their sin, would cover all the unrighteousness in their life, all the places where they weren't connected with God. And it's really important that then they could, they could have a relationship with God. So these guys are going to this service. And either at, three, either at dawn or at 3 p.m. And they're going up. And so this is the story Jesus tells. Everybody knows what I told you about what it's like, but a bit more personally than all of us. And they're going up to this temple. One's a Pharisee and the other's a tax collector. And you know immediately that Jesus is doing the same thing again. I mean, the same thing in most of the stories that we looked at in Luke. Uh, most of them take part, that most of them include a Pharisee and a tax collector or somebody else that's like a tax collector. Now, the Pharisee was a Jew who was a, very, a Jew very serious about following the law and the rules. Okay? And they believed, much like many people today, that to have a relationship with God would mean that you, be, you behaved a certain way. And uh, they were not necessarily specialized people. They were just people that had joined this movement that believed that God was looking for people to be holy and set apart and do good. 
So this guy is a part of this group. And the other guy is a tax collector, which is really, it doesn't really matter that he's a tax collector. A tax collector is an example of a person who was rejected by the religious people. Tax collectors were sellouts and had joined uh, in the enemies of the Jewish people. They had kind of taken their side and were stealing and extorting money from their own brothers and sisters and families. And so for the Pharisees, it wasn't just that this guy is unethical, but that he was far from God because he was taking advantage of God's people. So he's taking advantage of God. I mean, he's as far as they could think away from being righteous. He's the most unrighteous person and therefore has no relationship with God. So Jesus wants to tell these, these people who are confident in their own righteousness a story about a Pharisee and a seemingly unrighteous person who go to the temple one day to pray. And so as they get into the temple, the, the story goes, Jesus says, the Pharisee stands by himself. It's good I have a mic that can move today. So if everybody's in the temple like this, you've all come to the temple and you're, you know, the, the lambs in the front and the priest, the Pharisee would stand like way over here because he doesn't want to be near anybody that could rub up against him and make him unclean. See, his whole confidence about coming to the temple is that he is, he is clean and we'll get to it because of what he's done and who he, how he lives. But I can't, I can't assume that all you commoners who are here, yeah, if I rub up against you, I could... I'm now going to have to worry about the fact that, and they they believe this, that the life that Rob lived is transferred to me. And now I'm not going to be clean or righteous. I'm not going to be righteous, able to have a relationship with God. And so so you see, he's standing way off to the side, literally, because he doesn't want to be around the other people. I mean, he'd be happier if he was the only one in the temple. So he's standing by himself. And then you have, imagine that the lamb's been slaughtered, the blood spilled, everybody watching, he's standing off to himself, and he prays this prayer, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, I love this, this is so relevant even to today, it just sounds like, I'm not like other people, robbers, I love the choices he has too, but robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, and he knows who he is, right? And then he says this, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. So here he is over here standing far away. And imagine he picks out who he thinks is like the worst of the worst, that tax collector. Thank you, God, that I'm not like him. What he means is, I mean, imagine this. You, can, you see a bit into the heart of the Pharisee. And imagine it again, just like a man. It doesn't matter that he's a Pharisee. He's just a man that's praying this prayer. He, in his heart, is full-on competition in comparison. His life revolves around comparing himself to other people. Because for him, and for, about this whole idea of righteousness, why, is he, why does he think he's righteous? He thinks he's righteous because of how his life looks compared to the other people he can see. That's what makes him righteous. So when he looks out in the temple and sees, thank you, God, that I'm not like any of you, especially that person. That's why I'm righteous. I'm set apart. I'm different from all of them. Of course, I'm acceptable to God. And he says this, why does he really think that? What has he done? And he says this this interesting little sentence, I fast twice per week and I give a tenth of all I have. So he's talking about fasting and what the Bible calls tithing, right? For the Pharisees like this guy, 
they were so serious, they believed that the, the rules of the Bible, and there are, there's a law, especially in the beginning of the Bible, they believed that following this law would grant you relationship with God. But they were so afraid that they, that they would fail and screw up somewhere that they started uh, expanding the law. And the belief was that if I do more than the law requires, that I'm not in danger of breaking any laws. Right? So the law, if you go back to the law in the Old Testament about fasting, the only, the only requirement for the Jewish people for fasting, and this is not eating, okay, the only requirement was that you fast one day per year on the Day of Atonement. Now Jews might have fasted more, but the, only, the law said once per year. The Pharisees later said, okay, it, we want to make sure, like maybe like God says one, but maybe he requires more devotion than that. So we're going to fast 12 times a year. And this was according to the festivals they had. They would always fast. Skip, sorry. This guy fasts twice per week. So you see the kind of guy he is, you know, uh, thinking that I'm going to even be, on, be beyond my Pharisee friends. And I'm going to fast so often that there's no doubt that if God requires fasting to be close to him, that I will for sure be righteous. And then he says, at the same time, I give a tenth of all I have. And so in the Old Testament, there was a, a requirement that you tithe, that you give uh, the first 10%. So if I had a farm, and I'm growing wheat, and I collect all my wheat, I take a tenth of that wheat, and I give it to you know, the temple or to God. In the Old Testament, there's very specific requirements of what I give a tenth of and what I don't have to give a tenth of. And the Pharisees then up that a bit and say, okay, any oil I get, any grain I get, any, and they have a list. 10% of all these things, more than, more than the law requires, I'll give all these things. This guy then says, forget it. Everything I receive from anybody, I give 10% to God. So he says, of course. Like, that's why to him, that's why he prays this prayer. He's very confident. For sure, God, thank you, I'm not like them. For example, I fast twice per week. I give a tenth of all I have. This, is, this guy is a, is a prime example of... Of, a, of what the world knows of as a religious person. There's a, before we keep going, there's a big error that we can make in reading the story. And this, because you'll see it at the end, but I guess I'll say it now. The, the story, or the, the, the wrong thing to do is to do what he does. So often the way we'll read the story is to say, thank God I'm not like the Pharisee. Thank God I'm not so self-righteous. Thank God I don't think so highly of myself. And then we're caught. <laughs> in the story. And this is the, mo- the way that we usually interpret it. And so I'll just leave it at that for a minute, so I don't know what you're supposed to do. But Jesus is telling the story like this for a reason. So Jesus says, so there's the Pharisee, you see him there, just in love with himself. And then the tax collector, he said, Jesus says, the tax collector also stands at a distance, just like the Pharisee, right? I can't change this line. And he wouldn't even look up to heaven. So this guy doesn't want to stand by anybody else, just like the Pharisee. But he doesn't also, you know, kind of metaphorically, he doesn't even want to be near God. He won't look up, you know. Why? But instead, instead of even looking up to heaven, it says he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, in the, in the Middle East and in the culture of the time, to do what he's doing, to beat his chest, is, is, is like the, the response to tragedy, like the worst tragedy you can imagine. You imagine, and it, it was almost always, the, the picture is like of a, of a woman who loses her children. 
And in, in the moment where she's with her child who has died, she's, she's beating her chest in like agony. That this is, this is to them, it's the, the physical representation of like the worst thing that could happen. Frustration. This guy is standing in the temple, surrounded by everybody. Now imagine too, I mean, this guy has also come into the temple this day, a tax collector. He, he knows who he is. He comes in, he watches the lamb be slaughtered. The lamb that's slaughtered is supposed to be slaughtered for everybody sitting here. You know? So he's watching this happen. He won't, even, he won't even look up to pray, as you can imagine the Pharisee, in his pride. And he beats his chest and he just says, God have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. This word mercy, what he asks for, there's a word for mercy. And mercy, uh, what it usually means is, is for, for, you know, for somebody to have mercy on me is to, is to hold back their, what their, the, the judgment that they could on me. You know? what I rightly deserve. Mercy is fine to think about it as, but the word for mercy that's usually used in just after the story, there's, a, there's another guy in the next story who cries out for mercy from Jesus. It's not the same word. In fact, the word that, that is, you see as mercy is really the idea of atonement again. It's not the word for mercy. So if you read it like that, here's what the guy's saying. God, make an atonement for me. Do an atonement for me because I'm a sinner. That's interesting because what he's doing is he's watching, he's watching an atonement. So an atonement is almost always a, a physical sacrifice. It's something dying, which is weird for us today, I think. But it's something dying in order to pay for, for your life's mistakes, most simply. This guy is watching an atonement happen for him. This is supposed to be the purpose of it. That's why it's so interesting that is, it's time to pray after the atonement. He prays to God and says, in agony, God, will you make an atonement for me because I'm a sinner? What's he saying? He's saying that for him, it's not enough. He doesn't think the lamb is enough for, what, for who he is and what he's done. If the lamb is enough for maybe the people sitting here or maybe this Pharisee I can see over here, but for me, surely it cannot be enough for me. Surely this land that's slaughtered twice a day that I come to, and I pray, surely this does not mean that I can be in a relationship with you because I am a tax collector. I am a sinner. The word sinner, as we talk about often, is, is though we use it in all kinds of different ways, in the story of the Bible, it is, it is the name for a human being, really, who has been cut off from a relationship with God, which is everybody. The word sin means to miss the mark as if I'm, I'm shooting arrows at a, at a bullseye and I can never hit it. No matter what I do, no matter how close I go to the bullseye, I can't hit it. This guy understands that this is his identity apart from God. That this is who I am. God, will you please do something for me? Will you please? I know that that's an atonement, but will you make one for me? I need something. Surely I need something more than this. I didn't say it, but the reason that he's, he's off to the side, like the Pharisee is off to the side, is because he doesn't want to contaminate other people. He has so much similar belief as the Pharisee, but he's, he thinks he's unworthy to be a part of this because he's literally taking advantage of, of everybody here. So he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Make an atonement for me. Jesus says here at the end, he says, I tell you that this man, this is interesting, he says, I tell you that this man, so he's referring to the tax collector, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified, before God. Notice too, the Pharisee doesn't have a name anymore. Jesus doesn't refer to him anymore as a name. He's just the other, literally the other. Doesn't show up again. 
But he says he went home justified. So again, you have Jesus tells people who are confident that they can have a relationship with God based in and of themselves. He tells them a story about two people that walk into a temple for an atonement service, to be atoned for their sins. One person, it's as if the atonement doesn't even matter. He's just thankful to God that he's not like other people, thankful that the answer to his life is within himself. The answer to him having a relationship with God, he's secure in and of himself. The other guy can't stand to even look at what you know, metaphorically would be God. But instead he beats his chest in agony thinking about the fact that he, he needs God to do something for him if he's going to have a relationship with him. And he said that that man that day, that's all he did. That day that man, the tax collector, went home justified. What does that mean? Jesus is saying a very radical thing to the people that he's talking to. The word justification means that, that he, just like very similar to righteousness, justification is the act where he's been made right before God. That he, he's saying that that man goes home in a relationship with God where he's totally accepted no matter what he's done in the past or what he will do in the future, that he is totally justified before him. As if God is a judge, he's completely and utterly innocent for life. So these people that are self-righteous are saying, how did the guy get justification when he was such a bad guy? How did the guy get justification when he's so unrighteous? And we see that what happens with the tax collector, Jesus tells them like this. He says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. So what the tax collector did, simply, is he came before God and he humbled himself, whereas the Pharisee came before God's presence and he exalted himself. That's true. But this is not, it's not just about becoming humble, and it's especially not actually about being humble in life, which is a good thing, too. And it's also true what Jesus is saying, because he says this often, that those who exalt themselves in life will be humbled in the end, will be brought low, but those who lower themselves, God will raise up. This is true for a community of people. Uh, But the story is about how we think about God and how we approach God. Now, we all have a belief about God, and even if if this is you or a friend of yours, even if we don't believe in God, we still have a belief about God. That's annoying to people who consider themselves atheists to say, but... You, you, it's just the way that you believe about God. You, you react to him as if he's not real. Um, also, for myself, if I, I believe in God, but there are days where I, my belief in God is shaped by, or my, my relationship with God is shaped by how, what I believe about him. So if I believe that God is looking for me to fulfill certain things in my life, if I'm to have a relationship with him, then I relate to God in relationship as if he's looking at everything I do with a scorecard, that kind of way of thinking. But it doesn't matter whether I'm an atheist, an agnostic, uh, I believe in God, or I, I really follow Jesus very seriously. What we believe about God informs my, our relationship with God. And so this is what the story is, is about, is that this is why it's about a quiet revolution of love. The story of the Bible is about relationship, most simply. It's about having a relationship with God. In Genesis chapter 1, we have a relationship with God that, I can't do it. Take your hands, put them together like this. Okay, that works. I can do it. Um, 
the beginning in Genesis, God and human beings have a relationship that's completely intertwined, completely close. Just like last week when I talked about hell, if you remember, we talked about how hell is the beginning of hell is the beginning of the separation from God. So when we mistrust God, when we live in independence of him, when we begin, this is what the guy's doing, when we begin to relate to God based on my own performance, my own independence from God. But he doesn't need God. The, the Pharisee doesn't need God for anything. He's just, he's, he's fine within himself, and God's pleased with him. You see what I'm saying? That's not, I get it too. I listen to myself too. I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't understand what you're saying. Um, the Pharisee comes before God, not needing God to do anything for him, for him to have a relationship with him. Does this make sense? He comes to the table with God and says, God, I can have a relationship with you because I am a good person. Because I am acceptable to you because I am acceptable. Look at my life. The other guy comes to the table and says, God, I am utterly unacceptable to you. I understand that. I understand that I am unacceptable to other people. And I, I would love for you to do anything for me. He's beating his chest. I'm kind of calmly talking about it. Do anything for me, for me to be able to have a relationship with you again. Because there's nothing I could ever do to be in relationship with you. I know that. Jesus says that that person, now this is the tricky part. Just like if you read the story to say, thank God I'm not like the Pharisee, then you're the Pharisee, right? The Pharisee is, and this is important because I can say, thank God I'm not super conservative and judgmental to other people like those politicians. I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> thank God I'm not like that. Because I think this is the way that Phariseeism works today too. Thank God I'm not like those people that judge other people. Well, to Jesus, that might be somewhat fine, but you are still the Pharisee. So the place, the place that the tax collector is in is he's not just not a fair, he's not just not self-righteous. He's very in touch with his brokenness. He's very in touch that he's separated from God and that he needs God to act. John, uh, John is another writer. We're reading Luke. John is another person that writes about Jesus from his relationship with him. And he says this at the very beginning of his story. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, the story that Jesus tells about a lamb, about the temple, and I know I've told you about the lamb, and it's not in the text, but this is what they do in the temple. The lamb being slaughtered is supposed to be for the sin of the people, the wrongdoing, everything. Like the, the purpose of it is just to wipe away everything in your life so that you can come into contact with God because sin is the thing that separates us. So if you don't have sin, you can be in a relationship with God. The guy knows that the lamb is not enough, right? Even though no one tells him that, nobody thinks that. He just knows in, inside that that surely cannot be enough for me. And Jesus says that it's not what he does. This is the point. Just like, don't be like the Pharisee. It's not that if I come to God and I try to be humble like him, you know, and I, and I, I don't know if that works, beat my chest. And, and you do all these things. If I do those things, then I'll be in right relationship with God. We still miss the point. This life's really hard. Like Jesus' teachings are very difficult because they're not about doing things. If I come get in touch, this is just the way I would say it. If I get in touch with who I am, my identity as cut off from God, which is the tax collector. We all have different stories, and my brokenness looks different than yours, and maybe yours looks more obvious and broken like the tax collector, or maybe my brokenness looks more like self-righteousness, like the Pharisee. I must get in touch as a human being with the fact that there is a God who desires relationship with me, but I am 
in myself, completely unable to do that. This is what we believe. So going back to the beginning, that we believe we're mostly about helping people have a relationship with God. The reason that I think that most people don't believe in God is because we're cut off from God. It's not a surprise to me that people would have trouble believing in him or feeling far from him because the Bible says that we're cut off from him. We're, we're, we are separated from him and we weren't made to be. And so it's obvious that in some, in some lives that feels like he's not there or he doesn't exist and that certainly makes sense. But, but the good news is that Jesus says that this man, because he asked God because he came in his brokenness, felt it, not just did it, felt this brokenness and said, God, would you make an atonement for me? Will you do something for me? Because I'm a sinner. And he just leaves it at that. You know, he goes back home. He is completely and utterly dependent on God. He's coming. You see what's happening. is He's actually coming into relationship with God. The other guy's prayer is, is a sorry excuse for a prayer. The Pharisee. What's he even saying? He's saying, Thank you for being my audience, God. Thank you that I'm not like these people. Look at me. Thank you that I'm not like that tax collector. Thank you that I do this and this and this. In case you didn't see already, I'll let you know. And that's not really a prayer. The other guy's prayer is the most honest prayer you can have. He's, he's completely broken and says, God, would you do something for me? This is the heart of, of what we call Christianity, of Jesus' message. Is Jesus is, literally, this is why he tells the story too, as John sees, Jesus is the lamb. This makes sense. In the story, a lamb was a literal lamb that was slaughtered, the front and the blood spilled. And you guys can come up, actually. That makes sure that I don't just keep going and going. In the story, it was a... It was a literal lamb that's blood was spilled. And the, the picture is that the, that, that the person who has faith in Jesus, Jesus became known as the lamb that was slain for the sin of the world. So he's saying to people that understand the picture, I am the lamb on the altar that you come to twice a day thinking that this is, a little, this is enough to clean up my life for the day so that I can be in relationship with God again. And he says, I'm the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. All the sin of the world. And so if you'll, if you'll come and receive that kind of atonement, this is why it's very simple. If you receive that atonement, then it will wipe away your sin completely. Then you'll be in perfect relationship with God, justified today. This is it's a very simple thing. So how do you have a relationship with God when it feels like God's not there? Well, God's always been there. He's always wanted a relationship with us. And Jesus is saying that it's the, it's the person. So how do we get that? It's the person that comes to God with nothing. This is the hard part that comes to God with nothing. It says, God, will you make an atonement for me? And, and God says to us now, I've made an atonement for you in Jesus. This is the part that is a stretch of faith, is to believe that what Jesus has done as he died on the cross for us, as he shed his blood, is actually like the picture of the lamb on the altar with his blood shed, and coming and saying, I have nothing in and of myself that gets me righteousness. There's nothing in me that says, well, certainly I can have an accepting, a fully accepting relationship with God based on what I've done. The message, the, the, the quiet revolution of love, the good news, is that God has done something to make us righteous. But we must let go of our righteousness, the own righteousness we have. So we come to Jesus, and uh, Nathan and Melissa, you can come up. And if you would, the, the juice and the bread is in the back, so you can grab it and you can, you can stand up here. We're going to do something today called communion.
at the at the end of uh, the gospel, I'll pick up where I left off. But at the end of the gospel, Jesus is sharing dinner with his disciples, and he again he's always trying to bring it back to this point. So I realize that in the series that we've talked about the same things many times from many different ways and many different with many different words. But this is it again: is it's Jesus trying to tell us that to have a relationship with God, which will change your life. I mean, imagine imagine that it's just true for a second. If you don't believe it, or sometimes you have trouble. Imagine that life is about having a relationship with God. And just imagine for a second that that relationship with God is actually intimate and close, even if you haven't experienced that, and that that's what life is made for. And then imagine that you go through life and you never experience that. But that's what life was made for. That's the tragedy. So last week when we talked about hell, that's the tragedy of hell, the idea of hell, is that I was made for a relationship with God, but I never met him. It's like, obviously, everybody had a father at one point, but some of us knew him and he was bad, or some of us didn't know him, or some of us, uh, some of us don't know where he is. We never met him, we don't know who he is. This is like how life is like with God. Some of us, obviously, we, we might even pretend we don't, but we all come from somebody. But we're cut off from him, we live all of life without meeting him, and it's a tragedy to think, the story of the Bible, is that the father actually wanted to know you. It's not him that's away from you. It's you that's away from him. And he desires that if you would come to him in a way that's actually him, like the tax collector. It says, Father, I desperately desire to know you. Will you make an atonement for me? And he says, that person that did that went home that day in perfect relationship with God. That's justification. He came in thinking, i got to be away from everybody because I am not a person that can be near God. That's why it's not about rules. That's why it's about. That's why it's not about the religion that we've talked about. But it's a way of saying, God, I so desire a relationship with you. That's all we're about. Will you make? Will you bring me into relationship with you? And it's through Jesus. So this is the story here. It's through Jesus. It's through what He's done on the cross for us. It's through His own blood being spilled that we say, you know, what? I'm not going to go to a temple twice a day and watch a lamb be slaughtered for me because that won't be enough for me anyway. I'm not going to work really hard and try to do things in life because that won't be enough for me anyway. What I will do, what I could do is, God, will you you do it then? Will you just, if you would, would you cleanse me? Would you bring me into relationship with you? And every time we do that, anytime anyone ever does that and says, I accept what Jesus does for me, what he's done for me, so that no matter what happens in life, I mean, I hope my life changes, but even if it doesn't, you have justified me in relationship with you. I can know you now and forever. Thank you for listening to the Jubilee Montreal podcast. For more information on Jubilee Montreal, visit us online at www.jblmontreal.org.